In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today, we would like to bring to our prayer the virtue of holy purity and how our Lord calls us to live this virtue, especially within the context of preparation for marriage. Some people like to speak of the time before marriage as a time of courtship and then engagement. The idea behind courtship is that well, the two people are trying to win each other's hearts. They're trying to learn to love and to sacrifice themselves for each other. And there are those who prefer this term or the reality that it points to. You can, we can use, I suppose, in the end, another term for it. Because it points us to that this time before engagement and marriage, it's a time to grow spiritually it's a time to grow in true in the true union or in the true reality that unites us which is the sacrificial love that god has for us and also that sacrificial love to which god calls us to participate both with him and also with each other to help us pray in this way today we can start with this little summary in the book of Genesis in which Moses, after recounting these early stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel after creation, he sums this up by saying, well, now in, the, in chapter 5, now we're at the book of the generations of Adam. And the entire summary is that on the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them mankind on the day they were created. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees on this question of, whether it's lawful for a man to put away his wife, and we don't want to focus on that so much, Lord, in our prayer today. But when Jesus wants to go back or remind the Pharisees to go back to the beginning, the fundamental reality, and he says, Have you not read that he in the beginning made man, male and female, and this is the reason why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. 
But Lord, today in our prayer, we want to meditate on this reality. Male and female, he made them. From the beginning, they are male and female, and they are called to become one. And unity begins with unity of the Spirit. And if we could take a step back as we meditate on these words, we can recall that when we're baptized, I think so often when we, when we pray about these things, it's important. Our Lord wants us to remember the wider reality within which we're participating in this great adventure of finding the one that God wants us to love or through whom God wants us to love God. And of course, to do that, we need to remember the nature of our baptism. When we're baptized, we die with Christ. And when we die with Christ, we realize, as St. Paul reminds us, we no longer operate, we're no longer justified by works of the law, but simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And our faith in Jesus Christ, St. Paul is here saying that, and he says this at several moments, in both in Galatians and Romans, but throughout his letters, that when man is not living in union with God, what does man do? Man creates his own law. He creates a series of laws. He, cre- he tries to create his own morality. And St. Paul reminds us, especially in chapter 4 of the Romans, that no matter what law man lives under, whether it's the law of the Old Testament, whether it's the law of the Greek society of the time or the Roman society of the time, or whether it's the law of one's own creation. Because whenever we depart, whenever we think that we can depart from the, the noble and honorable and very prudent guidelines that Jesus Christ and his church has set out for us, we create, we essentially are creating our own law. And the Holy Spirit reminds us, no one can be justified by the works of the law. And in the fourth chapter of Romans, the Holy Spirit reminds us that anyone who sets out to live by a law independently of Jesus Christ is bound to fail. Why? Because we are justified not by works of the law, but we are justified by the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us and rising from the dead, he shows us that if through baptism we enter into that, he creates a bond with us. Through baptism, he creates a bond with us. This bond is a real bond. This bond is a supernatural bond, which meaning, meaning it's beyond our power to create it. But yet, it's something we need. <clears throat> and this bond can grow. It's a, it's a bond that's born of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. As St. Paul says, I live not now, I, but Christ lives in me. I don't now live in the flesh. 
I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself for me. St. Paul understands, and Lord, we ask you for this understanding, that it is the sacrificial and it's the it's the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that has created this bond that unites us with the Blessed Trinity, that enables us to see the love of God the Father, that enables us to experience the grace of the Holy Spirit. That true love ultimately, and the two there are two qualities that we're going to be called to live throughout our life throughout our married life, we're going to be called to live sacrifice and generosity. We're going to be called to live patience and long-suffering. This bond we have with Jesus Christ, this is a bond that can become stronger. It becomes stronger by the investment, we might say, the sacrifices, the prayers, the acts of charity that we put into the bond. If we don't work at the bond, the bond doesn't become stronger. But St. Paul also indicates to us how strong this bond can become. It can become so strong. It can grow to such an extent that now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I live now not in the flesh. I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. This is the setting for our understanding of marriage. And of course, in that passage that we quoted at the beginning of the meditation, we noted that precisely this challenge that is being raised to Jesus Christ by the Pharisees, <clears throat> it's being raised by the Pharisees in the context that, and Jesus Christ reminds them of this, you yourselves created in a way you created your own law or Moses created your own law for you because you failed to accept, you failed to identify with the original vision of man. And the original vision of man is that man is made in the image of God. The Blessed Trinity is a communion of persons who have this sacrificial love, one person for the other. And inasmuch as we are made in this image, we are called to imitate on this earth to prepare for heaven that time for eternity when we will be a part of this communion of persons. And so in marriage, when we are married, we stand before our Lord and our Lord creates a bond through the sacrament of marriage between the two persons, the man and the woman, and also with him and with the entire Blessed Trinity. <clears throat> this bond does not, and, and of course, as we know, the two become one flesh. This bond, which is a bond of love, it doesn't exist before marriage, though we know that the whole part of dating, part of courtship, part of engagement. It's that time in which we're getting to know each other with a view to the formation of this bond. And I think most importantly, with a view to learning 
taking the first steps, maybe not the first steps, but taking steps together to live this sacrificial love that we are called to live as part of the marital covenant that we create at the moment of the sacrament of marriage. And Lord, <clears throat> what we ask for is that we ask for that this time before marriage, that it can be like a real preparation, that it, be, that it can become, that it really truly be a real preparation of growing in love, growing in this sacrificial love that we are called to live as part of marriage. And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, perhaps to take a step back before we go to the Catechism, so many, so many people come to the priest after a tragedy of some sort. And they'll say things to the extent, people will say things, to, things along the lines of, well, I wasn't really struggling to live holy purity. And I realize now that I was trying to create my own morality. I realize now that it, I too easily fell into this notion that, well, what can, what can just one old man say or what can one person say in the face of the way everyone else seems to be acting? Or I really allowed myself to be deceived. It's helpful for us to realize that <clears throat> well, we live in a culture, we live in a time in which people are enamored with science. And this is not, it's not new to our time. St. Augustine, speaking about Roman society in the fourth century, comments in the City of God that we Romans think that we live in an advanced scientific and technologically advanced age. It's not new. It's not new that a society think of itself as scientifically superior. And also at the same time, there's a tendency within Christian circles, I think we can pinpoint this back to the 1940s and 1950s, of some who, uh, like as St. Peter identifies, in his first letter, St. Peter says, there will be some who come along who will try to argue with you and who will try to say that everything is same since the beginning of the world. And that little phrase, if we think about it, there are some who pr propose a kind of naturalism who say that co combining this, this idea that Peter articulates that there are those who are against Christ who say that everything is same since the beginning of the world. And then those scientists who end up saying the same thing, they say that, well, whatever inclination or whatever desire a man has, it's not sinful for him to act on them. In fact, he doesn't grow. He doesn't grow. He doesn't become mature unless he acts on them. And sad to say, since the 1950s, so many people, and not just since the 1950s, but throughout time, but especially in our own time, so many people have been led into impurity by 
naively accepting or without knowledge accepting this pseudo-scientific attitude towards one's natural inclinations, thinking that there's nothing wrong or there's nothing to be corrected with my or whatever my natural inclinations suggest to me, it's perfectly fine if I follow on them. Oftentimes, this becomes an excuse for pleasure, for comfort-seeking, in which one is, as we, as we were praying about earlier, in which one is creating one's own morality. And so we ask our Lord for deeper faith. We ask our Lord for greater trust. We also ask our Lord for this capacity to make, to, to see the time of dating, courtship, marriage, to see it as a time of pre- preparing our hearts to truly love, and if necessary, right, to also see it, to see the, to see it as a time of training, a kind of apprenticeship, in which we're starting to help each other to learn how to love. The Catechism reminds us that there is this need for apprenticeship, apprenticeship between a man and a woman, and learning how to love properly. And the beautiful opportunity that we have during the time of dating, courtship, and marriage is this opportunity to learn how to grow in friendship with each other, to learn how to love each other with that sacrificial love that, in which we're not seeking anything for ourselves, in which we are growing in our sacrificial love for each other, at the, while at the same time seeking the vision of God. <clears throat> the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I think once we understand this and we turn to the Catechism, we can understand how we can grow in chastity together within this context of our baptism, preparing for the sacrament of marriage, within the extremely wise and prudent guidelines that the Church has laid out for us based on millennia of experience. Whenever, whenever we, there are so many people that when they first start to date or they are courting and they can find some of these guidelines difficult, they can be tempted to think that, well, it's, it's not a, this is, there's no real experience here or somehow I'm smarter than what, what the church says. And sad to say, that almost always leads to tragic consequences. The first thing that the church reminds us, and Lord, we ask you that we can embrace sound Christian living and the high ideals of Christian living throughout our whole lives, is that after we're baptized, we do need to struggle because of original sin, that, in other words, using those, those words of Peter, that everything is not the same from the beginning of the world, that original sin has happened, and that also over time, personal sins can become, in a way, institutionalized into customs, customs which lead people astray. And given the flow of history the last several hundred years, there are, there are especially in this area, the customs of, in many societies have wandered very far 
from the high and noble human ideals that Christianity proposes. And so the Catechism reminds us, well, the first thing that we do within the, in, this, in these relationships is we continue in this struggle against the concupiscence of the flesh and disordered desires. <clears throat> and when we promote in our own, in, in the way that we live, in the way that we act, this virtue of chastity, it's a virtue that lets us love with a sacrificial love, with an upright and an undivided heart. And then the Catechism reminds us to strive for purity of intention. And that as we are growing to know the other person, well, we want to know the other person within the context of, which we, of which we continue to do, seeking and fulfilling the will of God in everything, having that be the first emphasis. Purity of vision, internal and external. This requires that we discipline our feelings and our imagination, that we refuse to give any complicity to impure thoughts that would lead us to turn aside from the path of God's commandments. And here, there was a, there's an image that's provided by one ancient philosopher to think of the person as a whole in the sense that, well, <clears throat> the, the feelings and the imagination, they're like little children. And they're good, but they can act up and they can cry out and they can, they can long for things that at this moment aren't good for them. Right? A, a child can grab a knife on the table and not know how to use it. It's very dangerous for the child. But with, with discipline and training, the child can learn when, when, how, when and how to use all good things. And... Another reality, of course, it's part of the struggle of concupiscence, is that, and our Lord knows this, but it's that we are training our feelings, we're training our imagination, we're training our desires, we're training our inclinations, that all of these aspects of us, it's, they're like little children. They can act up at times. And if we just let them lead, they can lead us in, ter in directions that maybe aren't the best for us. And in fact, one way of describing this is to say that when we are baptized, our, our spirit is regenerated. And Lord, we thank you that we don't always see this, but that we ask for the faith to be aware of it and to live according to it, that when we are baptized, our spirit is regenerated. We now are participating in this wonderful growth of the children of God. And the struggle that we're still undergoing is this struggle of bringing our bodies into conformity with what has already happened in our spirit. We can say that Jesus shares in our struggles in this way, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And 
at the Last Supper when he prays to be glorified, that's an indication that his human nature had not yet been fully glorified, that he had to suffer. He had to offer sacrifices. He had to, of course, he endured all things but sin. But nonetheless, he too had to undergo this through his death and resurrection. He, under, he, had to, he underwent this transformation. And of course, now his divinity, his humanity is glorified. His divinity works through his humanity completely. <clears throat> Prayer also greatly helps helps us to grow in holy purity and to live chastity. There is, we're not here, of course, to, we don't, and we don't, we thank our Lord for all the, all the uh, great discoveries of science. And one thing that, especially neuroscience, has taught us is that when someone is addicted to anything, but when someone gives into an addiction or in, we used to call addictions vices. What happens is that, well, we have these receptors, we have these receptors in our brain that give dopamine, that, and dopamine gives us a healthy pleasure at the right things. When, when somebody reads a book, it gives them a little joy. When someone focuses on work for a while and then does it well, there's a kind of joy. And actually our dopamine receptors give us this joy in, in these moments. Well, when someone is, has a vice, the dopamine receptors are, are, are thrown off. And in fact, when someone is deeply immersed in a vice, the dopamine receptors are like spark plugs that get fried and they don't work anymore. They don't work properly. But what, what we see, even just a physical benefit of prayer, that when one learns how to pray, even these, or when one focuses on work, or when one gets immersed in a hobby, or when one experiences a normal relationship with another person, taking a walk through a park, climbing a beautiful mountain, realizing some difficult thing together, this helps to restore to their normal functioning, these receptors. And of course, if grace builds on nature, then we can see also how prayer could help us both even physically, but also supernaturally. The Catechism quotes, I thought that continence arose from one's own powers, it's quoting Augustine, which I did not recognize in myself. I was foolish enough not to know that no one can be continent unless you grant it. For you would surely have granted it if my inner groaning had reached your ears and I with firm faith had cast my cares on you. When we pray, when we learn to pray and to remain united to the love of Jesus Christ first in our prayer, well then, we grow in love for God our communion with God grows and we become more capable of this sacrificial love that we're called to live with others. Our Lord also says, again, in 
discussing the Beatitudes. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery. And this is an indication to us of the high ideals that Jesus Christ is calling us to live, to, 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 to direct even our imagination, our memories, everything in our, our heart, everything, first to the love of God. And so a small virtue <clears throat> that helps us so much in this is modesty. Modesty protects the intimate center of the person by refusing to unveil what should remain hidden. Living modesty shows a great sensitivity to living well the virtue of chastity because modesty guides how we look at each other, how we behave towards each other, and how we also are willing to sacrifice even in small things in preparation for marriage. One of the virtues that I think courtship and engagement asks of us is long-suffering. Long-suffering is that virtue where we wait. We wait for some good as long as we need to wait. The Catechism also reminds us how modesty protects the mystery of persons and their love. It encourages long-suffering in a loving relationship. It requires that the conditions for the def definitive giving and commitment of man and woman to one another be fulfilled. It inspires one's choice of clothing. It inspires one to keep silence and reserve whenever there's a risk of an unhealthy curiosity. And there's also modesty of feelings. Modesty of feelings leads us to protest, the Catechism says, against any inappropriate expression of the human body in advertisements or in the way that we speak, not wanting to go too far in intimate things. It inspires a way of life that leads us to resist the allurements of fashion or the pressures of whatever might be a prevailing ideology, which we have been indirectly kind of pointing towards throughout our time of prayer. There's so much more that we could pray about, but we turn to Mary, mother of fairest love, and we turn to St. Jose Maria, who saw in the 1950s how the climate would change. He, he already understood by the 1950s how the climate would change. And he saw the need for a shrine dedicated to Mother of Fairest Love as part of counteracting the wave of impurity that he thought would come through culture and society in the upcoming years. Let's turn to Mary, Mother of Fairest Love, and ask her that we can become even more committed to living this generous and sacrificial chastity in preparation for marriage. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. <laughs>